we dropped them off. We're, we're, we're airborne initially at 3 a.m. And uh, we're going to do a relief in place at about 5.30 for the other two Apaches uh, to come back and get fuel and we'll go and take over the overwatch. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back. This is episode 108 of the Rotary Wing Show. In today's episode, we're going to hear about a pretty unique incident involving an Apache over Helmand province in Afghanistan. Thanks for coming to hang out again as we get a chance to dive in and learn more about the amazing world of helicopters and some of the people that make up the industry. As you kick back and, and listen, just know that you're a part of a community right around the world of people just like you with a a shared interest. And with that shared interest and a like community comes a bit of an opportunity or maybe a responsibility in some cases to keep an eye out for each other and support each other. In the last couple of weeks, a pilot I've known and worked with, Alex, took his own life, leaving behind kids to two different marriages. It came as a real shock to me and knocked me off balance for a bit. Alex was a really confident guy, very experienced and a skilled pilot. He'd operated his own helicopter company. He'd been a chief pilot of a powerline helicopter company, used to race cars, and had recently been endorsed on Ericsson Skycranes and was flying water bombing on fires in the US. He was one of the last people I would have had concerns about with mental health. It just doesn't fit the picture I have of him. Even now, it's hard to believe it's true. And I think that's what rocked me because if Alex, you know, being the type of person he was, if Alex was affected to the point he took his own life, then this is something that all of us are susceptible to. And the, the frustrating part is that because of who he was and the time he had spent in the industry, there was no shortage of people who would have been willing to talk with him or help him out in any way uh, whatsoever. So there's a bit of that survivor's guilt, I guess. I don't know if that's the right term in this case, but that guilt that those of us that knew Alex weren't able to help him out. I mentioned all that essentially to make the point that in your helicopter career, that there are likely to be times where you're working under pressure, you know, away from family or in remote locations for long periods of time, and things might get overwhelming, whatever your experience level or your personality is. But you've got to know that there is a whole community of people just like you with very similar backgrounds, the shared interests, understand what it's like to work in the helicopter industry, understand some of the sacrifices that you might have made to, to get there, and just like you're listening to this episode, so are they in weird and wonderful spots around the world. So you are not alone. Please don't make the rest of us feel guilty by not giving us the chance, the opportunity to help you out. I wish I had kept in better contact with Alex. Social media, for all its ills and downsides, is a great way to bump into new people in the helicopter industry that you might never have otherwise met. A LinkedIn post by Clive Richardson, caught my eye. Clive is an ex-British Army helicopter instructor flying in the UAE. In his post, Clive was talking about it being 10 years since a 2000 degree magnesium flare burnt through his Apache window and landed in the cockpit with him while airborne and over Helmand province in Afghanistan. He posted a photo that showed the difference on his skin from where he'd been protected by his helmet visor to where he had no protection. So I thought that might be a fun story to, to track down and with a safety message there to make sure you wear your protective gear if you've got it because you just never know when you might end up with a, a flare burning in your cockpit. We also talk about helicopter training in the UK Army and about the Blue Eagle helicopter display team. I hope you enjoy this one with Clive Richardson. Clive, welcome to the show. and. Mate, I think we might start off with uh, the ground pounder stuff that you did before you got into aviation. So can you quickly, it looks on your CV, about 10 years walking the ground before you got into aviation. What was the... Yeah. yeah. How did that work? Well, did you get sick, well, of, well, sick of seeing people fly past? 
Yeah, yeah. Mick, thank, thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, it's been it's uh, it's uh, it's a pleasure, honour. Thank you. Um, so obviously you can tell by my accent that I'm not Australian, <laughs> straight off the bat. So I grew up in London, and uh, and I had always wanted to fly. I think lots of people that do fly know from a very very early age that that's exactly what they want to do. And I think my mum tells a story of when I was about three or four, I picked up like a ladybird book and there was a picture of a cockpit and I was like, that's what I want to do. And, uh, you know, you get this sort of cursory pat on the head. Uh, of course you do, son. You know, that's uh, everyone to be a pilot or an, an astronaut or something like this, you know. But that, that sort of grew in the back of my mind all through my school years. It's like I, I really wanted to be a pilot. But unless you've got loads of money, kind of the only way to get into it was really go through the military. So uh, I, I sort of applied. I was sort of 15 years old. I applied to the RAF and uh, I managed to pass all the tests, surprisingly. And uh, I got offered a scholarship to do a degree in uh, avionics uh, and then move forward through that to go through pilot training and hopefully one day become a fast jet pilot. So I was like, brilliant. I'm, I'm kind of in here. This is exactly what I want to do. And then... We, we, we got into a bit of trouble with some mates. Uh, it's fair to say that a lot of uh, mates growing up, uh, it was it was quite. Uh, it, it, we, we were probably naughty boys, basically. And one thing kind of led to another. And my mum and dad grounded me for six months. And I was thinking, how can I get out of being grounded? So I, I joined the Air Cadets over here. Was the RAF cadets? It, it was absolutely brilliant. I loved it. We were about sort of camping, and we would we, we'd get the occasional chance to go and fly chipmunks and we'd go gliding, and we'd do all of this. So I actually, you know, got into the air. So I was like, you know, this is this is this is fantastic. This is exactly what I want to do. So when I passed all these tests to get into like an RAF scholarship, one of the guys there has said, oh, "Have you thought about maybe joining the army and flying helicopters?" I was like. Well, why would I want to fly helicopters? You know, I'm going to be a fast jet pilot. That's what everybody wants to do. And like, oh, you know, just a thought. Maybe you should go along to the army recruiting office and have a little talk with them first before you sort of commit. So I thought, well, you know, it's probably it's probably a wise idea. So I went into the recruiting office and I was a bit nervous because you know, walking into an army recruiting office, you think you're going to be in the infantry in two minutes and that'll be you. But I chatted away to them. They're very nice and uh, they put me through a load of tests and I passed all the tests to join the army air corps to become a pilot. But unfortunately, you can't join the British Army straight off as a pilot. You have to do two or three years on the ground uh, before transferring and going through your pilot's course. So they said, oh, you could, you know, you could join the cavalry or you could join this or you could join the infantry or you could just be a groundie, you know, wash windows. And I was like, yeah, I don't think this is really for me, but thanks very much. And I left. So I kind of ummed and ahed about it. And I thought, you know, what else could there be? And one of my friends... Did you still have the option... I was going to say, yeah, probably still have the option yeah. at that point on the uh, on the ref side, or yeah. So I still had that option as well, and I was like, right, you know, the, the world is my oyster. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just finishing school. It was like uh, just just coming up to my 16th birthday, and I was like, right, you know, what can I do? So the army recruiting office is in the um, high street of, of Finchley, where I live in North London, and I walked around the corner about two days later, and a guy on a moped jumped off the back of the moped and shot the recruiting sergeant in front of me for about six rounds. And he turned out to be an IRA terrorist. And I was like 15 years old and I witnessed that. And uh, luckily, I'm glad to say that the guy survived. Wow. Um, and uh, I, I was just like, I, I couldn't believe that what was happening in Northern Ireland had basically come to my high street. And I was thinking, what had that guy done so wrong? that they had to feel like they shot him. He had two kids and all the rest of it. And like I say, he survived. So, you know, my, my mentality was that about two days later when they armored, uh, opened the army recruiting office, they said bullet holes in the window in the, in the actual sign as well. I walked in and I said, uh, what was that guy in that got shot? And he went, oh, he's in the Royal Green Jackets. It's an infantry regiment. He says, but you don't have to worry about that because you're going to be a pilot. And I was like, yeah, but I'm going to join the Royal Green Jackets um, because I'm not having some RA terrorists come and shoot people on my doorstep and not do anything about it. So they were like, are you sure? And I was like, sign me up right now. And so I joined the infantry. That's that's one of the warriors join the army stories I've heard. Like I know that there's a lot of uh, a lot of Americans have you know talk about their 911 sort of signing up, but yeah. uh, <laughs> that's, uh, so, that's that's pretty uh, pretty memorable. So like, I come home and my dad was like, what? 
you know, you got this, you could, you could got a scholarship to the RAF, you could be a fast jet pilot, you could be a helicopter pilot, you want to join the infantry. Yeah, I was like, yeah, like this, you know, so anyway, I, I joined, uh, that was back in uh, 1990, and uh, I joined at 16 as a junior leader, and I spent a year in training, and actually, I really liked it. It was, it, it was not what I thought it was going to be. It wasn't like full metal jacket, they, you know, they were, Right, we found ourselves because we were 16 years old back in the classroom. I'd never been very talented at school, and actually, I'm dyslexic. And uh, actually, years later, finding out loads of helicopter pilots are dyslexic as well. Uh, and I think it must be that kind of left brain, right brain thing. But uh, it it never really sort of held me back because I had a clear focus of what I wanted to do. And uh, yeah, and, and they put me in as a as a bugler. So I ended up being a bugler. I was like, oh, I, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to play a bugle. I, I want to do some fighting, you know, like this. No, no, this is what you need to do, you know, whatever. So uh, actually, it was great. It was, it, was, it was a great life. I did loads of stuff. And I obviously did all the infantry stuff. This is above the normal infantry stuff. So, you know, I went to the Arctic. I went to the jungle. We, you know, we were on the streets of Northern Ireland. We did, we did loads of stuff. And uh, it was there on, the, on my first tour of Northern Ireland that I met my now wife. And, uh, it, you know, back in the early 90s, uh, it was quite punchy. And, uh, yeah, there was lots of stories that come out of that. But um, I was like, I, I was enjoying it. It was really good. And I started progressing up the ranks and started to do quite well. So I got sent to uh, our training college in sort of 1998 i was training recruits and while we were there there were some other army air corps soldiers that were there that were also training recruits they were uh, full corporals like myself and uh i was like you know how how do you become a pilot how do you do this thing because i joined the army thinking i'll do a couple of years and then transfer and here i am nearly 10 years later and i still haven't done anything about it so they're like, oh, you have to put all your paperwork in and you have to pass all these tests and these maths tests and nobody ever passes it. You know, it's all this sort of thing. And I was a bit nervous about it. So there was me and one of my friends. We were sitting in the office and uh, our, our captain walked in. And uh, he's, uh, it, was a, it was a lovely guy. He was a short, sort of stumpy guy. And he was always blabbering on and doing things at a million miles an hour. And he dropped loads of paperwork on the floor. So me and my friend jumped up and we picked up all the paperwork. And he was quite sheepish about it. And we looked and we saw that it was uh, application for pilot selection. So we were, we were laughing because we're thinking, if you pass this, anybody can pass this. You know? <laughs> so like, we were like, so we said, right, boss, I'll tell you what, I'll do your deal. If you pass pilot selection, me and this other guy said, we'll, we'll apply for it as well. <laughs> and it was a big joke because I knew that I, I'd never be able to be a pilot. You know, I've got no GCSEs. I, I've got no degrees. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not that academically gifted and uh, anyway come back in a couple of months later and he said i've passed so i looked at this guy i said let's let's lift that paperwork in so we did uh, and uh we, so all, we, all three we of you get through all the selection processes but, yeah so we went through all the selection processes we did everything um i, I don't know how I, I really don't know how but we managed to pass everything and it was like yeah you passed you know so you know medicals and maths tests and all the rest of it yeah, I mean, we we, we, we did well, and uh, and then we had to try and wait for our time to get onto the onto the course. But the problem is, is that because I was doing quite well in the infantry, every application that I made to go as a pilot, they just uh, <laughs> they, didn't they lost want to it. go. They, they just threw it away like this. So in the end, I got so annoyed with it. I filled the application in, and I drove it down to Middle Wallop, which is the home of uh, Army Aviation for the British Army, and I gave it to the courses clerk myself. And uh, I said, out of interest, how many applications have you had? Because I've put three in. And she looked at me and she goes, I don't even know who you are. We've never received an application from you. <laughs> so I was like, Gotta, you gotta know, love the army system, don't you? Oh, God, it's terrible. But it's like, if you want something doing, you, you, you know, you've got to take it to that next level and get it done, you know. So I, I, got, myself on the, uh, I got myself on the pilot's course. The, the wonderful thing about army aviation is that they don't care who you are. They don't care where you come from, what your background is, how many degrees you've got. It's a leveler. They just want to teach you something and they want to see how quickly you can learn it. Uh, and I was good at that. I was good at being taught something, observing how something was done, and then being able to kind of replicate it and understand it, you know. And I you know, did lots and lots of work as we all did, you know, reading through all the manuals and trying to get up to speed to make sure that, you know, we don't end up getting kicked off the course. 
our pilots course for lots of different reasons in the UK. We had foot and mouth and all this sort of thing. It took nearly three years to complete what really was a nine month course. So there was lots of time where we're sitting around doing not a great deal. So, you know, any day we could get chopped and it gave us the opportunity though, to sort of put applications in while we were sitting around doing nothing to use our time wisely. And I managed to put an application in to fly with a fast jet squadron. I've got about 16 hours Hawk as well, flying fast jet. And it really, really scratched that itch about wanting to be a fast jet pilot. And having done 16 hours in a Hawk, it was amazing. It was a brilliant experience. But after 16 hours, I'm like, I'm glad I'm going helicopters because helicopters are so much better. <laughs> it, there's so much more to do, you know, than, uh, you know, as a fast jet pilot. But, um, Clive, yeah. I, I was uh, I was in the right place at the right time, and I got one F eighteen ride, and I, I got sick. But um, my my one memory of it is just the the throttle opening up on the runway and, and just the, the pushing back in the seat. And uh, yeah, look, that was a lot of fun. But uh, you're right, you know, flying helicopters at low level is uh, definitely up there as well. Yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. So. Yeah, so uh, we I got onto the pilots course and we we started off the um, in the British Army. They start off and all three services train together. So we were training with the Navy guys and also the RAF guys. So it, even though we were from different services, when you go through aviation, we're all working together, uh, which was really nice actually, and very very grown up and extremely talented individuals. So I was, I was you know very lucky to be part of that group went through flying fireflies so fixed wing first did about 100 hours on that and then we transferred across to the squirrel as350 uh, and then spent a lot of time doing that um, it might have it might be before your time then just uh, given if you're on the squirrel but i've heard a, yeah. a couple of rumors and i've never been able to you know find out the answers from the, the uk helicopter training there but yeah the, the two and the first one was that uh, they used to strap the students into a, uh, a litter kit and then do auto rotations with the, the students looking face down in, in the litter kit uh, on the side of the helicopter. So I don't know how far back that goes. Um, wow. And, and then the other one, again, I don't know if it's a gazelle or not, but uh, quite a, you know, we basically switched the engine off um, for auto rotation yeah. practice as in like completely shut it down and uh, do auto rotation yeah, through the well, engine off. Well, sort of later on in my career, I ended up being, uh, I flew gazelle quite a lot. And then I ended up being a, a gazelle instructor, so a QHI, like a squadron QHI. So we used to take people out all the time and do engine off landings, and we used to do it in the gazelle. And uh, you're quite right. There's the throttle in the roof. Uh, you take it out of the fly gate and you pull it back to the idle gate. And because of the way the gazelle starts, when you actually start the rotors, what you actually do is you start the engine, and then with the clutch, you then engage the rotors. So what you do is you basically disengage the clutch and the engine goes to idle. So there isn't enough time to move the throttle back into the fly position should anything go wrong. Something you can do with a 350, uh, you can put it back into fly and hope the NR picks up as quickly as you can. But uh, with a gazelle, once you're committed, you pull that throttle back, you're going to the ground. So it's not completely off, it's just at, at idle, but it gives it gives the same sensation as what would happen uh, as close as you possibly can. Uh, obviously, they still drive to the tail rotor and such like. Uh, hence the reason why the Empire Test Pilot School spend a lot of time flying gazelles uh, and doing engine ops with the gazelles, how they teach on the Empire Test Pilot School, because it is the best vehicle for that, to do that. Yeah, it definitely would uh, focus the <laughs> focus the mind and the attention, knowing that you're, you, yeah. you're going to complete that auto. Yeah. Yeah, um, like I mean, uh, I mean, just going back, going through the the, the, uh, the pilots course, I, I I then went to after finished my fixed wing, we went to Shawbury, RF Shawbury. So it's all run by the RF on this thing. There was there's two squadrons that you do the first squadron, which is all your basic rotary so taught how to hover and take off land and so on and so forth, and then you go on to the more advanced stuff. We do night and IF and things before you go forward to the army side of it, where you start going into the tactics. So I was on the very first squadron at Shawbury. Things were going quite well for me, and uh, I was I, I was really enjoying the course, and it was working out really nicely. And I was ending up flying with the boss of the squadron, who happened to be a Navy guy. We went out in this sortie, and it was one of those sorties that everything was going well, 
and I was like, I was like, this is this is I'm I'm absolutely acing this. This is great. So he said, uh, he said, well, right, okay, take me back to Shawbury and uh, we'll do an engine off at Shawbury so you can settle that up. I was like, yeah, perfect. You know, so I did the whole thing, did all the RT, really proud that I hadn't messed anything up, entered this auto rotation. And at the time as a student, you brought the throttle back to the idle gate, which is what I did because that's what I've been taught. And everything was all set up. It was all perfect. And he turns around and looked at me and he said, uh, okay, uh, are you going to close the throttle? I was like, uh, yeah, the throttle's closed, it's idle. Uh, at this point, I'll just point out that I've got about 12 hours on helicopters. So this Navy guy goes, no, no, close the throttle. Sir, close the throttle? Yeah, yeah, close the throttle. All right, then. So I pressed the slider and shut the throttle. He's like, shit, <laughs> that. So uh, we actually did a proper engine off in the squirrel. And I'm, I'm glad to say, uh, I didn't fly it. He took control, obviously. And uh, glad to say it worked out exactly like we do when you do it when it's just at the idle cave. Um, the only difference is, is that as you land on the ground, you can count the blades going around, which is a bit worrying. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Did you take that forward into your instructing career in terms of the importance of uh, clarifying? Yeah, there was, <laughs> yeah there, was, there, was, there was a little bit of CRM there. And the worst thing about it is, is the sortie was brilliant. And he gave me a red for the sortie. And he said, like, you know, you should have known not to shut the throttle down and I, I i thought it was wise just to keep my mouth shut because sometimes <laughs> it is but i was like well you should have known as the instructor that the throttle was in the idle gate it's not my problem you know but hey you know we learned from that and we walked away so a success you know all right Clover, i'm gonna fast forward um because you obviously did a bunch of stuff in gazelles or you know you know i'm guessing a lot of that might have been operational in northern ireland or it had sort of quite a name by then yeah yep yeah um any any one story you wouldn't really want to pull out of the, the Northern Ireland sort of patrol? Oh, uh, uh, there's there's probably quite a few. Um, <laughs> I'd say, I mean, I, I you know you know like it's one of these things. That somebody once told me it's a very old adage that uh, you know when you start flying, you start with a a bag full of luck and an empty bag uh, of experience, and you you take the chips out of the bag of luck and you put them in the bag of experience, and the idea is to fill up the bag of experience before the bag of luck runs out. <laughs> And uh, I had one of those stories once where we come back after a long night, and uh, in Northern Ireland, it, it so, so what would be out. a what would be a long night? Would you you know bounce uh, some refuel yeah. or hot yeah. refuels or? Yeah, well, it, on, on on this particular night, we uh, we actually had a mess function, and they call it the fathers to sons. So my father had uh, flown over. And uh, we're all sitting. In the <laughs> we're, we're, this is already the, uh, starting out like you, you know you hear certain stories, and yeah, <laughs> the fact that there's a mess dinner yeah. that night. Everybody sets yeah, up. You, 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 you can't write this stuff. <laughs> the word come round is uh, all the pilots that are not allowed to drink because there's stuff kicking off and it might go pretty live. So about 20 minutes into the dinner, there was like little nods and whatever. It's like go and get your kit on. We're going flying. So I had to leave my father at dinner and uh, go go flying for the whole night. So that was sort of like seven, eight o'clock. And uh, we were probably returning back uh, after quite a few refuels and having flown probably about six hours or something like that. And uh, it started to fog out, but we were at about six, 7,000 feet over Belfast and we were looking, we could actually see the airfield. So it's not, not big drama. And the airfield's going, oh, it's starting to fog out here. And I'm looking at the airfield. I say, look, I can see the runway lights. I can see the landing point. You know, it's not a drama. Like, oh, okay, fair enough. Like this, you know. So anyway, time come for us to go back for a refuel. And uh, we started making our approach. And just because of the slant visibility, <laughs> we didn't really appreciate that we just went straight IMC at about 15 feet above the ground. <laughs> so we're like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? So I could see the, the, the white lines of the runway. So I just hover taxi down the whole length of a two mile runway to get to our landing point. And we managed to do it, the GPS and everything. And then we, we shut down. And there was about four other aircraft doing exactly the same thing. So we're all talking to each other, make sure we didn't bump into each other. It was ridiculous, you know. So we got out, everybody was safe, thank goodness. We shut down, whatever. We went back into sign down. The ops officer comes out. He went, come and have a look at this. So we went, oh dear, what, what are we looking at? And he takes us to the roof of the hangar. And you could see for miles, because <laughs> the fog was only about sort of 30 metres in, in, in depth. <laughs> We've been just hover-tacking straight through the middle of it, where if we would have gone above it, we would have been fine. But, you know, you live and you learn, don't you? So, uh, yeah. But, um, 
Oh, nuts. All right. Well, again, you, you do that. You do uh, instructing. There's a whole bunch of stuff there. But let's jump uh, straight to your time in, in the Apache because I guess that was the, the whole sort of the LinkedIn post initially where you, you had some yeah. excitement in the cockpit come through. But, uh, yeah, look, I guess, you know, gazelles, squirrels into the Apache, that would have been a, a bit of a, you know, a change in terms of uh, yeah, what you're used to. So, yeah, I mean, when I, when I, was, uh, when I was instructing on, uh, on the squirrel, uh, it sort of come back one day in the office and said, right, you're going Apache. And I was like, I do not want to go Apache because there's so many stories about the Apache, about all the people that fly it are a bunch of prima donnas. And uh, everybody hates them. Yeah, it's extremely difficult. It doesn't, you know, like it, nothing ever, you know, it's just, it's not where I want to be. And <laughs> this is a very stern look. It's like, you're going Apache. That's it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so anyway, I, I, I went Apache. And from the moment I got into the Apache cycle, I couldn't have been more wrong. The people that were flying it were just brilliant. Nobody thought that they knew everything. In fact, instructors that I know had been flying for 25 years with thousands of hours in the Apache were still coming back and getting the books out going, why did that happen like that? And it was really refreshing to see. So, yeah, I, I, I absolutely 100% enjoy it. The way that it was taught was just brilliant. And you only have to go through the Apache conversion to realize that the Apache was designed by pilots. It really is. They have thought of everything. And um, I haven't flown an aircraft since that just really, really applies all the experience that has been learned from all the time up to the design phase of the Apache and then applied everything that they possibly can. And money wasn't an option. It was just, we're going to make this the best aircraft that we possibly can. And they, in my eyes, 100% succeeded. And I really don't see... Uh, how they could actually make it any better than it is. You know, we have software upgrades and we have bits and pieces, but actually hardcore machinery it, it is absolutely fantastic. And if there's any aircraft that I'm going to put myself in harm's way in, it's going to be the Apache because I know that that machine will do everything it possibly can to keep me safe. So, uh, you know, it, it is it is a fantastic machine. I don't think you will ever meet an Apache pilot that doesn't like it. Uh, that is simple as that, I think. Well, it's going to be, a, yeah, a couple of junior Australian pilots very excited because I think we're eventually going to, I think Australia's just committed to, to getting some. Yeah. So need to be in the right place at the right time. And I remember when I first started, the, the Tiger hadn't come in yet. And there's all these guys who have been waiting yeah. years and years to, to fly the Tiger. And uh, it just uh, it just delayed and delayed. They ended up moving into to desk jobs and things like that and missed out. So there could be a few oh. people in the same boat now who are just <laughs> refusing <laughs> postings and uh, promotions to try and hang around long enough in a flying uh, spot to, to get the Apache. Well, well there's, there's quite a few of my friends that have actually left the British Army with lots of Apache experience, have gone across to the Australians, and they're now flying Tiger. And they've been flying it for probably about the last sort of eight nine years or so so when they do bring the apache in they'll be sort of primed providing they're still sort of flying to be flying that and the difference is i mean i've been in the tiger i've spent some time in the south of france and the uh, in the tiger school and had while we were on apache and we took the tiger guys and put them in the apache and the the tiger guys like were like you know good enough for us to go into the tiger and it is like completely different. I mean, just completely different. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to say it's 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 worse, but the Apache is definitely better. <laughs> so uh, you you um you 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 have made uh, the Australians have made absolutely the right decision buying the Apache. They will not be disappointed. Uh, yeah, it's perfect. I know a few people here in Brisbane who work with Airbus and that. So I've got to be. Uh... Uh, diplomatic when I'm uh, out at, uh, at the pub talking about this. <laughs> they get very defensive. But uh, Fair enough. I, I flagged yeah. it. Um, I flagged it earlier. I was going to ask you, having done that ten years on the on the ground, and and I guess especially if, if everyone who's flying patches has done some kind of you know other job in the, in the army, hmm. does that give you? I don't know. Does that give you a lot of? Does that help it actually operate it as a combat platform? The fact that you've done the job on the ground and you know yeah. what they're doing. 
So, uh, so like jumping forward to when we were in Afghanistan, the incident that we're going to talk about on that particular tour, the guys on the ground, the JTACs on the ground, they're controlling you and they split up into all the different areas. So as you fly through area to area, you're obviously switching over the ground frequencies to talk to the guys that are actually controlling that airspace for any attack profiles that they require. And it just so happened that my old battalion were in Helmand at the time. So when I was like, I became like quite well known in the battalion because of what I'd done. And I was probably one of the only people from my battalion that have gone across to the army air corps to become Apache and then, you know, or become a pilot and they've gone Apache. So I would see them in like, uh, in Bastion Starbucks and stuff like that, you know, and we'd be chatting away and, and they, you get on the radio and they'd be like, is that Clive? And I'd be like, yeah. And they're like, all right, mate, how are you doing? <laughs> so it was the, the most like amazing experience to be able to support people that I've spent a lot of time with that were on the ground in the shit. And I, it, to be able to know exactly how they're thinking and what they want and kind of almost deliver it without, with minimal communication really works. But that's fine. But if you've been doing it for quite some time, even if you haven't got any of that experience on the ground, you start to learn how people work and you understand what people want. But um, yeah, for me, I, I, I think it helps definitely 100%. And I, I also know that they have uh, some of the JTACs, some of the American JTACs, the chosen call signs. These guys are fast jet pilots and they spend some time with the US Marine Corps and they are embedded with the US Marine Corps and they control the fast air, but actually are on the ground. So they're trained, qualified, fast jet pilots. And when you speak to them, they are cool, calm, collective, and they just tell you what you need to know, and that's it. And they are so good and so, like, you know, they cut out all the rubbish, and it works very quickly. Uh, and I can't, I can't, you know, sing high enough praises for those chosen guys because they really put themselves in harm's way. And then after spending two years on the ground with those guys, they then go back into the cockpit. So you now got these F-16 pilots that then become A-10 pilots that have spent two years on the ground you know really really with the bullets flying and everything they know exactly what they, you know what guys want on the ground and, and that's the model that you know that the the u.s military take and i think it's a it's an excellent model i'm not sure how an raf fast jet pilot would fare if you put them in with the <laughs> parachute regiment probably wouldn't last a week <laughs> but there you go and the uh the, the five-star accommodation doesn't uh, doesn't come with it yeah, yeah, <laughs> they don't get a gold card. <laughs> All right. Well, do you want to tell us about the, the day then when we had? Um, yeah. Yeah, we should sort of led to your LinkedIn post. Yeah. Okay. So uh, basically, we were going out. We're going to go and do a, a deliberate operation. We were going to uh, escort uh, quite a few helicopters, lots of troops, to go and saturate an area. So I think we had like three or four Merlins, or fortunate loads, and there was going to be four Apaches as well. We were going to go in at night. We're going to drop, uh, give overwatch while they dropped all their troops off and then went back to Bastion. Uh, and then what we were going to do is leave two Apaches on station and then everybody else go back to Bastion, refuel or whatever, and wait for a day extraction. So it was uh, it was one of those nights where you don't go to bed because there's lots and lots of planning and then you have orders and then that just go on forever. But we kind of always like know kind of more or less what's going on but um you know the support helicopters are umming and about where the landing point should be and all of this sort of stuff you know and it just goes on and on and you're sitting in the background sort of drinking coffee trying to stay awake you know uh and then we uh we we, we get going at sort of 3 a.m in the morning so we all lift and everybody goes and sure enough as eggs or eggs they they go to the wrong location they miss the landing point and they go over the other side of a canal and they drop half of the troops on one side of like a, a canal or wadi and a load of troops on the other side. And it's no matter what we can do, nobody's on the right frequency and all this sort of stuff. And so it, it, it kind of delays everything. So it just said that what we're going to have to do is the guys that are dropped on the wrong, wrong side, they're just going to have to swim across a wadi and then they're going to get on with it. And we're talking large numbers of troops here. So we leave two Apaches on station. Everybody goes back. And uh, there's uh, myself and another Apache. 
he's the air mission commander for the whole thing. And uh, he goes back and gets the refuel. And I'm his number two aircraft. I'm, at this time, I'm the squadron helicopter instructor in the situation for the Apache force. So I've got quite a bit of experience on Apache by now. And I've got a brand new front seater who's a captain, lovely guy, you know, very, very capable. But over the watchful eye of the squadron instructor flying in the back. So I'm back seating. So my, my the luxury of being a squadron QHI is like one day I'll be in the front and then another day I'll be in the back. So I'll get to do kind of a bit of everything. But it does mess with your head because uh, there's so much to think about when you're in the front. So I'm very much in in the capacity seat here. So we go back, we go back and we get a refuel and we're sitting with the uh, hoses in and uh, we're just going to sit there. So the Apaches that we've got, we've got, uh, we've, we had um, some RCEFs, which are basically extended range fuel tanks. And we dropped some of the missiles off the extended range. And so they can stay airborne for three hours. We drop them off. We're, we're airborne initially at 3 a.m. And uh, we're going to do a relief in place at about 5.30 for the other two Apaches uh, to come back and get fuel. And we'll go and take over the overwatch. So um, that, that's exactly, you know, the kind of MO that we're looking at. But what we've worked out is that the guys on the ground, the Taliban, know that the Apaches have got about three hours of fuel. So after about two hours, 30, everybody gets ready and everything goes kinetic very quickly. So we, we know that this might happen. And because there's a bit of a confusion with where the troops are, it's a really bit of a dodgy situation. So I'm sitting on the wing. And we're coming up to about 5.30 when we're going to lift. And uh, because when we put all the troops in, what we did is uh, we, we, we've, we come up with a system where we take a monocle. So we take a set of MPGs, we cut one of the goals off. So we've only got one tube. And then we have a, um, a bracket on our helmet. So we can have one tube in the left eye. Because in the right eye, you've got your fleur projected through the monocle. So you've got flur in your right eye and you've got IR in your left in your left yeah, eye. Right. And then 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 everything else is turned down. So much so that even if your lip lights are on, you know, you'll attract bullets. So you, you've got to keep everything as, as minimal as possible. And the reason why we've got the, the the monocle as well is that we have a laser pointer. So we've got the SF and we need to designate targets and they're all obviously on MVG. We can use it the laser pointer and point to point bits on the ground where we found, you know, enemy sort of enclaves and stuff. So the only problem with this is in order to fit this monocle, you've got to take your visor off because it's got a bracket on the helmet. So I'm sitting there and it's getting close to 5.30 and I'm thinking, well, hang on, the sun's coming up at six and we've got three hours worth of gas. So it's going to take me about 15, 18 minutes to get to the target area. So when I'm actually on station, I'm actually only going to need this goggle for about 15 minutes. So I was like, nah, this is no good. So I called the safety equipment section guy over, took my helmet off, and they've got some tools and everything. I said, take the bracket off, put my visor back on. So he's like, are you sure, sir? It's dark. I was like, just do it. Like this, right? So we put the visor on, and off we went. And So uh, can I just, just check then, Clive? So with those yeah. helmets, do you have the, the clear visor and the dark visor? Correct. Yeah. So you, you, you've got you've got a clear visor, a dark visor, and then you've got you know one of the hard shields to protect it. But in order to take uh, to put the bracket on for the monogogue, what we do is we take the hard shield off, undo both of the visors, so you yeah, have okay. nothing. Gotcha. Yep. And then just just stick it on. So so basically they put all my visors back on my helmet. So off we go. We go back. We do the relief in place. Um, but just to kind of we stayed out of the way quite high level while the other two Apaches went back for refuel. Uh, sure enough, as we did that, everything went very kinetic. It all went pretty sideways very, very quickly. You know, we got into uh, got into the fight about what was what was what we were needed to be done. And uh, anyway, the command come said, "Look, we're not actually achieving anything because they've all been dropped off in the wrong place, and people are kind of you know getting shot up quite badly. So get the Chinooks in here like now. Let's extract everybody." So they pulled all the uh, they pulled the Chinooks in. That took a while. One of the Chinooks got quite badly shot up. Managed to, but you know, like a Chinook, it's going to keep going, you know. And luckily, it did. But uh, he had a bit of a problem. So my my number one, my commander, he says, "Listen, mate. He says you stay with that Chinook, and I'll stay here on the fight here because if that Chinook goes down, it's going to need support, and I want you with that Chinook." So I was like, "Yeah, no problem." So. 
I went back to Bastion with this Chinook sort of just like looking after it. By that time, they'd extracted all the blokes off the ground and everybody was catching up and the Chinook was going a little bit slower, whatever. And I, I was sitting on it kind of in its sort of uh, seven, eight o'clock at about 200 meters. And uh, anyway, my air mission commander comes on. He said, right, that's us all off station. Everybody's safe. We're all going back home. He goes, uh, I'm going to come past you. I'll take the lead uh, and I'll lead, you know, the patrol back. And you just stay on station with the Chinooks. I'm like, yeah, okay, no problem. So now everything's, you know, the sun's up, everything's all pretty, pretty slow. And the guy in the front is like not doing anything. And he's like, oh, Clive, can I fly? I was like, yeah. He goes, because they don't get a lot of flying in the front. You know, and they, they're young pilots, they need hands on. So he put his, he put his cyclic stick up. I don't know if you're aware, but the cyclic stick in the front of an Apache actually folds down. So you've got like a little trigger that you can pull the trigger and it lifts up and then locks into position. So it comes up in between your legs so you can then fly conventionally. So when it's folded, so, when it's folded away, can you still yeah. like if you had to fly yeah. it like that, could you? Yes, like, yeah, yeah, you can do. So, it, but you'd have to reach further down. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it, probably, it probably sits about a foot off the floor. I'm just thinking in a so, hurry. Yeah. So if you if it's more important to control yeah, no, the aircraft, then yeah. yeah, yeah, you can, you can, you can do that exactly. So I said, yeah, no problem. You know, you have control. So I'm sitting there, and, uh, and we go back, and the sun's coming up, and we're flying back into sun. I was like, oh, blimey. So I click my dark visor down. As I click my dark visor down, my number one comes past on the left-hand side, and I look left, and he has a flare decoration. So we, we, we arm all our aircraft, and we've got, you know, chaff and flare and all this, and it's got laser warning receivers on the aircraft. So if it thinks that a missile is being launched at it, it will then fire out the pattern of flares and chaff to try and defeat the missile. And it's extremely fast. It doesn't give you a warning. It just happens. Something happened on the ground. I don't know what it is. Maybe somebody doing some welding or whatever, but a very bright light. Maybe it won't be the sun, uh, but maybe even the reflection from the sun of glass or something. Sometimes people have said that that can. So they, we never know what it was. And his flares went off. Uh, mine didn't. And as I looked to the left, the flares are pretty um, positioned on the Apache that you have some that shoot forward and some that shoot sort of outwards and downwards to the side and the ones that shoot forward because you've obviously got the airspeed to contend with they're weighted so you've basically got a weight a little bit smaller than like an airpod case that weighs like it's very heavy <laughs> and it's like like lead and then um, you have magnesium attached to it and so when it fires the weight goes out and the magnesium burns forward towards the weight as the flare is going forward. So this flare goes out and I see the flare staying in the same position of the windscreen. <laughs> and what do they always teach you at flight school? If it's staying in the same position of the windscreen, you're going to hit it. About three seconds later, it went straight through the window, straight into my face. So it, it hit the window and bearing in mind that you got two RTM322 engines going max chap. I've got CEPs in my ears with my ear cups and my helmet. And it made like the biggest bang you can ever imagine. Now, I'm, so, pretty, imp I'm pretty impressed with this. It gets through the window. because I've got to imagine that, you know, the, the Apache windows are built to take a bit of damage. Yeah, but unfortunately, unfortunately, let me tell you one thing. Everything in that is bulletproof, apart from the plastic windows protecting the pink squashy things. So they're not bulletproof glass. They're in between the front cockpit and the back cockpit, there's a piece of glass that is bulletproof. And it is so thick and so strong, it actually acts as the roll cage of the cockpit uh, yeah, was gosh. to roll over. Like we always used to joke, it's so you can't shoot the front seat or in the head. But hey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible, isn't it? But um, so anyway, it, uh, it, it, it hit me in the face. My my initial reaction, as anybody would be, is to try and move away from it, as I did so. At the same time, it hit me in the face. I hit my head off the, the right-hand side window. And as I did so, we have the, the MicTel cord to plug in for your communications is positioned down on the left-hand side, just down by your hip. And also the power to the helmet that controls the ability to move the gun and whatever. Uh, both of these 
unplug because you don't want too much cable because it would get in the way. So it's just about the right amount. So, <laughs> so you're off ICS at this point. So, so I'm completely off ICS. So my front seater, my, my, my young front seater, hears this almighty bang and thinks that he's had an engine failure. Now, the only way the front seater can see the back seater is in the top left-hand side. There's a small mirror that's pointing backwards, a little round mirror. And he, he recalls, he looked into the mirror and he just saw the whole cockpit fill up with like yellowy green smoke uh, instantly. So he's sitting there going, Clive, <laughs> Clive, <laughs> are you all right? Like this, right? So he's thinking, what am I going to do? Um, because we're over Helmand province, right over the green zone. And it's like, right, I'm going to have to land. And he's like, no, that's a terrible idea. I can't, I can't land. <laughs> like, you know, what am I going to do? So he's sort of going through these, these sort of things. What, 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 what could he do to help? What's going on? He can't talk to me. He doesn't know what's happened. Uh, meanwhile, in the back, what's happened is the, the smoke filled up in the cockpit so quickly, but I don't know if you've ever done dunker training when you go into the uh, the escape trainer, and uh, as it goes down into the water, the water line comes up to meet you, and everybody holds their breath. Well, the smoke was so thick it was like that water line, and my my training just thought, hold your breath, just don't breathe that stuff in because that's going to be really bad. So I just quickly took a real sharp intake of breath, and then that was it. I couldn't see anything, and. In my immediate reaction was put my right hand forward. There's the grab handle to open the door. And I went to grab the handle to jump out because I was on fire. And your immediate reaction is jump out, you know, like get out, get out of this aircraft. It's on fire, you know, but something, I mean, this was a snap second thing. Something inside of me is like, yeah, I'm at two and a half thousand feet. That's probably not going to end so well. <laughs> so it's like, I'm, I'm going to have to sit here and burn. Meanwhile, inside all this thick black smoke, I could see this flare, this magnesium flare, like burning. And it dropped into my nav bag, which is down on my right hand side. And my nav bag is got 150 rounds of 5.56 ammunition. It's also got my personal weapon and the whole load of nine mil ammunition. Well, this magnesium flare burning at 2000 degrees, it's not going to take long until that ammunition starts cooking off. And then I've got a load of bullets flying around the cockpit. So I quickly grab the bag, try not to obviously touch this flare and shake it out. And as I do so, it bounces into my lap. But obviously I can't, I can't hit it. It then bounces off my lap, goes down the side of my right leg, burns all my clothing down the right side of my right leg, hits my boot, burns all my boot, and then I try to stamp it out with my boot. By this time, the flare actually burns out. So the danger at this point for me is kind of over. Nothing else is on fire, but it's thick smoke, and I'm still holding my breath. So I was like, I've got to get this door open. But like we're going along at 140 knots. If I open this door, it's going to get ripped off and go straight through the main rotor I get hold of the handle and I very, very gently crack the door just to get a bit of fresh air in. Because there's, there's no, so, like, it's just the one door. There's no, like, uh, pucker loaders just, or... Just, there, there is with air conditioning, but I, I, I need fresh air in because yeah, it's just yeah. recycling that stuff. So... So I'm thinking, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to open this door and all the smoke is going to go out the door and I, and I can have a breath. So I opened the door and it was like something out of Harry Potter. All the smoke, like, like a ghost, just went straight out of the hole that it came in because of the overpressure. It just got sucked through the hole on the left side that was made by the flare. It was just the weirdest thing. I was like, <laughs> none of it went out the door. <laughs> it's, so um, so anyway, I, I opened the door enough. I, I was like, right, I can get a breath of fresh air. I closed the door and then I plugged myself back in. And I, I said to Phil in the front, I was like, all right, mate. And he was like, oh my God, what's just happened? <laughs> you know, so I was like, oh, I was like, you know, discuss <clears throat> what had happened. And uh, it was like, are you all right? And I went, well, I don't feel anything, but like, it's quite a bit of adrenaline. And I, I, I sort of checked myself over. Uh, and I said, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm pretty hot, but I don't think I'm burnt. I'm okay. So he goes, what do you want to do? Do you want to land? I was like, I don't want to land. Let's get to that back to Bastion, you know. Uh, and, and that was about 10 minutes flying away. So off off we go. You know, we, we, we go back. 
and every single part of the cockpit was covered in a fine black soot. So I, I had to sit there and just kind of wipe my instruments so I could see the instruments again and all the rest of it. So I just said to him, I said, right, uh, you fly it. I'm not going to fly. You fly it, take it back, which was what he was always going to do anyway. So I just get on the radio and just, you know, I, I sort of say, you know, like, uh, unfortunately, uh, this aircraft might not be able to do any more tasking today. <laughs> uh, we need to, we, we, um, we, we, we need to, uh, I need the engineer's support as soon as we get on the ground and this, that, and the other. So, um, yeah, so we, we, uh, you know, we got back kind of walked in covered in soot. Uh, you saw the photograph I put there on, on LinkedIn and people were like, what happened? And the, I sort of pointed to the Apache that we just stopped outside the tent with a big hole in it. And they're like, what? <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, the, 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 that's, uh, the, the rest is kind of history, but it was one of those things is like, if I would have not decided to take my monogogger off and put a, a visor on, I wouldn't have had the visor there to be able to put down when the sun come up and 10, 15 seconds later or whatever it was, the flare smashed into my face. I mean, the, the actual path it took, it went through the window, hit my visor. It then went down my chest and, and you've got body armor on with a big, uh, sort of bulletproof plate but in front of that i had a load more magazines as well and it burned all of that it burned all my trousers all my boot and my nav bag so yeah the thing is is that had i not been wearing that equipment i it would be a very very different story today uh, had i not been wearing a visor i hate to think what would have happened to my face and had I not been wearing Nomex uh, flying stuff, um, and I must say as well, this is getting towards the end of our tour, and we've been washing, and anybody that's been on tour will know, your stuff goes into wash, and it, and it gets washed at 1,000 degrees and comes back with none of the DPM camo on it. It's just all completely <laughs> washed out. And, 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 and like, full of cotton, uh, cotton fibers and everything else from yeah, all the other Yeah, and you think, you think, well, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't fireproof anymore. But hey, it protected me. There was burns on it, but it's like flash protection. So, you know, it, that it did what it needed to do. You know, was I wearing like an undergarment that you're meant to? No. Uh, would that have helped? Definitely. You know, um, but I was lucky because the flare with gravity just kept falling down uh, onto, the, onto the ground. But it actually burned through the hole of the, um, of the floor of the Apache. And one of the guys, uh, I didn't actually know him. I can't remember him. But he commented on my LinkedIn post and he had photographs and he was in charge of replacing the floor. And he had some pictures of the damage it done to the floor as well. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but yeah. No, that's that's an amazing story. And that's why I wanted to grab it because when I saw it come up, like just the safety message there, anyway, just, you know, if you've got protective gear, <laughs> wear it. Um, and especially yeah. something as simple, you know, if you've got a helmet on your head to, to then have the, have the visor down. Was there damage to the visor? Absolutely. Absolutely not. There was nothing. I looked at it, I couldn't believe there was nothing on the visor. There was, there was like, I, 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 you could see where something had scraped across the front of it, but no more than like if you would maybe put the visor on the corner of a table and push it across like that. But, you know, with a bit of a polish out, it was, it was absolutely fine. And I, th I think because, they're, one, they're very, very strong, and two, they're flexible, very flexible. And with the with also the angle that it came in at as well because it wasn't directly straight at you it came yep. in at us you know like 45 degree angle so all of those sort of things help but uh yeah well two other quick questions for you is one did you talked about the, the weight that goes on the front on the front of the flare yeah. <laughs> did, did you find that in the cockpit did you get to keep that well do you know what i looked everywhere for this right because <laughs> i was like where is that weight anyway so the bag that i'm holding up in the picture from linkedin Interestingly, uh, you'll notice that that bag is an American bag. And my, my wingman, the uh, air mission commander, who is where the flare originated from, from the other Apache, he had gone to the States about a year or so before. And I said, oh, sure, when you're out there in Rucker, can you, can you buy us a nav bag? So he went, yeah, no problem. So he, he bought the nav bag back for himself and one for me. And then the flare from his aircraft put a massive hole in it. <laughs> And I was like, you don't think I'm paying you for that for that mad bag, do you? <laughs> so uh, so I, I, I managed to get another one and uh, I unpacked everything and then put it into the new mad bag. And as I'm unpacking it, it ended up in the bottom 
of the navbag next to all my magazines. So I have got that weight sitting on my desk at work. So I kind of kept that. You know? Yeah. No, that would be an awesome uh, yeah, conversation starter and a pen of paperweight. But what was yeah, the uh, what was the view from the other from the other Apache? What did they see? Well, they they they, they saw the flare. They saw the flare go off towards the Apache, and they they were obviously worried that something could be launched at them at the time. And then the next thing, like the guy recalls, is seeing just seeing a whole load of smoke come out of the hole that was in the side of my windscreen, and then. <laughs> And then it was. Then he got onto the thing. He's like, Are "You all right?" Oh, yes. I was like, "Yep, I'm still here." <laughs> so it was. Uh, yeah, it was all. It was all quite. Uh, it was one of those, and it happened so many times. It's one of those one in a million things. This will never ever happen, uh, and it did. You know, like interestingly, when we got back, DSTL who make all the flat uh, the flares and they do all the testing and everything like that. They they come back. I put the incident report in. I did everything that I needed to do. Uh, the first thing they said, he said, right, send us all your clothing because we want to examine it. And I was like, yeah, but if I send you all my clothing, I have only got now one set of flying kit. So, no, I'm keeping it. <laughs> so I kept it. And even with holes in the legs and stuff like that, I carried on flying with it because I had no other equipment to sort of exchange it with. And it still works. So, you know, what could I do? You know, uh, And it took a while to get new equipment through the system I, I did eventually get new equipment but i just i kept the trousers i kept the boots and everything you know uh as a bit of a memento i suppose but they also accused me of uh of of lying about how close the aircraft were because i said that the aircraft were like they were probably a good sort of 50 to 80 meters apart and they're like no 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 it, that the, the energy in the flare is not powerful enough to be able to do this blah 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 and i said well whatever you scientists think it did so we had this big argument and they basically accused us as basically being too close in formation and if we were in close formation we should have safed our cmds button to stop the flares being dispensed yep but i've got to say i mean you know if that's everything that you sit there by the book that's what you need to do and you know as a helicopter pilot there are some things that you do forget and that are the heat of what's going on that just falls down the list because there's lots of other things that are happening so yes they could be correct in that but a couple of weeks after that i went out with one of the schnook crews who have got exactly the same makeup of flares that we've got and i said do us a favor when we're going along i'm going to film it and i want you to just let off a couple of flares and i and i filmed them letting off the forward firing flares and they they went about 300 meters in front of the aircraft and i sent it back to dsdl and i went there you go that's the energy in the flares. And they were like, uh, they're not meant to go that far forward. So something could happen, but they they, uh, they they rectified whatever it was. But initially, it was amazing that all the people sitting there in armchairs just wanted to point fingers at you and say, oh, you you know, this is you, you made a mistake. You did something wrong. You know, it's this sort of thing. So it's crazy, like, crazy piles again causing the problems. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's what you do. Yeah. One of one of the downsides of it is that when 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 you're in the Apache, you have this thing just above the um, the instrument cowling, and it's called the boresight reticle, and it basically looks like a little telescope. And what you do is when you first power up the aircraft, is you look down there as a little crosshairs, and you basically take a picture, and the aircraft takes a position of where your head is, and using the sensors of the uh, of the helmet, it knows where you're looking, so it can follow the gun and this that and the other. On that boresight reticle, I'd screwed a GoPro and I'd taken a video like of myself and some pictures of myself because, you know, pilots are just egocentric, aren't they? You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so anyway, this happened and I was like, I've got it on video. This is amazing. I've got a GoPro video of this happening. So I quickly got back, plugged it in and my battery had gone flat no. before. And I was like, no, no, no. So to this day, there's loads of people that knew that I had a GoPro on there who are convinced that I've got a video of it. But uh, I, I'm going to have to fess up that unfortunately my battery admin is rubbish and I never <laughs> did get a video of it. <laughs> uh, yeah. There you go. Oh, look, that's amazing. I'm just looking at time there. Look, um, while I've got you, can we quickly yeah. talk about the the Blue Eagles? Just because uh, I'm yeah, likely sure. to, to get a chance to, to find out much about that from from someone else. So, okay, so it's a display team. How many aircraft yeah. make up the team? Uh, it, well, it, it, it varies. So 
way back in the day, they used to have about five or six Lynx helicopters. Uh, then they had about four gazelles in a Lynx helicopter. And th there was always a different makeup. And it was always that sort of thing is that we would go to the air shows and try and promote army flying because very few people in the U UK know that the army have more helicopters than the RAF and the Navy put together. So it's everybody just thinks that the RAF do flying and that's it. And the army have got nothing else to do with it. So that's where the Blue Eagles come from. We could never match the Red Arrows, really, because, you know, they're fast jet and everything. Yeah, they're noisy and all that sort of thing. But we, we try to, you know, show the performance what the helicopter can do. So back in 2009, the Gazelle was getting, starting to get phased out. The Lynx were starting to get phased out. And they're like, you know, how, what are we going to do? So they just said, what, could we put an Apache in and just do a solo Apache display? So in 2009, we, we ended up being the first Blue Eagles uh, with the Apache. So, yeah, we basically got paid to go around at weekends and throw the Apache around as much as we possibly could, which was amazing because for such a large aircraft, um, you know, from tip to tail, it's one foot shorter than a Chinook. So I don't think a lot of people realise how big it actually is. Yeah. No, well, okay, yeah. No, I didn't so it is a big aircraft. It's 10 tonnes of aircraft, you know, it's big. So when you fly along and you go 90 up to 90 down and then do like a 360 corkscrew at 1,500 feet before pulling out next to the ground, it's like it is, you know, doing that in, in other aircraft is quite difficult, but trying to do it in Apache with the weight is, is phenomenal. But the engines that we have, are the, the Rolls-Royce engines also pr produce like a ridiculous amount of power as well. Uh, very, very reliable. Uh, everything about it was great. Um, the Dutch Apache team, they uh, they used to do a complete roll in it, like a backflip. Uh, and I, 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 I tried and tried and tried to ask if I could do it, but I was uh, the release to service is no more than 90 degrees from the horizon, no matter what. But there was, uh, I, so I did that for about three years, and there was uh, one time where one of the colonels came along and said, I'd, I'd, um, I'd, love, to, I'd love to sit in the front with one of your displays and have a go. And he, he actually happened to be uh, an ex green jacket, so infantry. And when we were in the infantry, we were infantry soldiers together. <laughs> so I, he used to carry the ammunition for a GPMG gun that I used to carry. And he ended up being my colonel. It's a, it's a mad world. So I was like, yeah, let's go for it. So I, I, I did a few bits and pieces and uh, I showed him how to do you know, a 90 up bunt and doing, you know, pedal turns and wing overs and all this sort of thing. So I said, right, you have a go. So he's like, hey, he's a very talented pilot. So, he, he, you know, pulls up, does a 90 up and then keeps pulling backwards. And we go all the way over. And at this point, I'm about 1500 feet. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> what am I going to do here? Because at that point, all the energy in the blade and all oh, your controllability is almost lost. So the only thing that really works at that point is the tail rotor. So I just put in a whole load of pedal and hope for the best. And the thing turned itself the right way up. And I was once taught on the course by a very, 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 very experienced. He actually brought the uh, the Apache into service. He was one of the test pilots. That there's a trim button on the Apache. It goes if you pull it back, it recenters all the trim, and it will get you out of the shit if you end up being in a really bad situation. So I just pulled back on the trim and the aircraft leveled itself to the horizon and I managed to pull out of it about 100 feet. So it was like, uh, that didn't go so well, did it? And I was like, well, I just need a minute here. <laughs> so, so I can't officially say that I've looped an Apache, but I've put it in the, well, somebody else put it in a very bad situation that I managed to get out of. So it's claim to fame. But uh, yeah, so we did, we did that for a few years. And we went round, unfortunately, we only just went round in the UK. And we would have loved to go to other countries and nations, you know, but, it, you know, one, it's money, it's extremely expensive. And two, because there's like security issues and things like that as well. So yeah, it was a fantastic, um, fantastic experience. So if you would have seen the Apache from 2009, 10, 11 that certainly more more than likely would have been myself i'm sure there's something on youtube i'll uh i'll go and see what i can can dig up yeah i i, I think there is yeah oh my god <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah probably yeah yeah absolutely
Oh, look, that's awesome. Look, there's some great stories there. And I guess I just really want to push home that uh, that safety message, though, uh, you had there, kind of in terms of, you know, if you've got got uh, protective gear, <laughs> wear it and uh, and use it. Yeah. It's there for a, for a reason. And, uh, yeah, that's what initially grabs it. Well, well, I there on LinkedIn, but mate, that, that's been uh, that's that's up there in terms of stories. That's, that's fantastic. So thank you very much for yeah jumping on and having a chance My pleasure. to chat about it. Thank you very much. And I know you've done a, a bunch thank of stuff you. since. So <laughs> down the track, we'll have to get you back to talk about uh, some of the police stuff and and, and training there. Yeah, yeah mate, that's uh, that's uh, some great experience. And thanks, yeah, as I said before, thanks thanks for for sharing it with everyone who's listening. No worries, Mick. Thank you very much. That was a fun one and pretty unique. I have heard of smoke flares being accidentally activated in the back cabin, but yeah, not a a flare going through a windscreen before. I've got a couple of photos that Clive has sent through that might be interesting to have a look at when you next get online. The photos are just a reminder of what a beast of a machine the Apache is. Clive also has the photo there of the flare weight from the incident that's still on his desk at work today. You can see this at rotarywingshow.com and this is episode 108 if you are looking for it. If you want to get hold of me, I'm at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. You can also find myself and Clive on LinkedIn if you want to throw either of us a connection there. If you've ever been to a, an old school boxing match, you'll know that after a good fight that the, the saying is don't clap, throw money. If you are in a position to send a dollar or two to help cover the bandwidth and hosting fees, to bring these episodes to you, any support is appreciated. Podcast is on patreon.com. If you look for Rotary Wing Show, or you can get there via rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. A big thanks to the amazing and skilled and good looking and just all round legends who are show supporters. We've got Gresh, Matt, David, Max, Mark, Ian, Hal, Stephen. Alidar, Ben, Jeff, Mike, Bill, Jason, Brent, Michael, AJ, Mark, Shannon, Kirillin, Eric, Jake, Chris, Gareth, John, Heath, Kevin, Tony, Peter, Jason, Michael, and Riddell. With that, that's a wrap for this time around. Thanks so much for hanging out. Please remember Alex's story and make it a goal this week to call and catch up and reconnect with someone you might have worked with or flown with but haven't spoken to in a while. The helicopter community is a small one. Let's look after each other.